Father, we give you thanks and praise for delivering to us this word, this written word, that we might know your will. You explain so much where we came from, what is right and wrong, why things happen to us the way that they do, and where our eventual destiny will be. We thank you for these insights, and only you can give them, Lord, for you are outside of time, you are in eternity, and you are all-powerful and all-knowledgeable. We thank you for sharing some of that with us. We ask that you do so this morning. Enlighten us. Direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who have been here for years, I just want to you know, give you a fresh welcome. And those of you who are recently visiting and checking it out, if you have any questions, please email the church and I can answer those questions for you. But I just want to say welcome to all. And, and everyone that is here, we are all at different levels in our spiritual walk. Uh, some of you guys are fully mature and women, fully mature. You know how to handle the Word of God. You can look at it. You can give counsel. You can say, this is the direction you ought to go and this is what you ought to avoid. And that's all good. And then some people come and they just like to listen. They just like to be fed. And there's usually a season in everybody's life where you do that. You just take it in. And there's no condemnation for either one. There is blessing for both who would come here. My desire, though, is that everyone just grows, that we are able to put ourselves to the side and we follow the promptings of Christ and we get in line with what he wants for us. Now, that's the task of all of us is finding out what God wants, what's his will. And if we follow in his will, that's where the joy comes in. I will say the joy comes in, but its companion is trouble. Those two come together just like a coin. You have the head of the coin and you have the tail of the coin. And it's hard to be accepting of both. We want the blessing, but we don't want the trial. We want to be seen upon as God's own, but at the same time, we don't want it to be seen as God's target or the target of the enemy. And so I just want to encourage you guys, stick with the program, whether you're coming here just to be fed for a while or you eventually want to go on to maturity, that's good. I just want to make sure that you guys are blessed either way. Now with this, we are called to salvation. Scripture tells us that we are called Before the foundations of the earth, our name was written in the book of life if we are, in fact, believers, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ. He knew us, he formed us in the womb, and he called us by name. And the Lord is going to give us a new name when we get to heaven. But he calls us. He says, I want you. Now, he uses us to reach out to others. Acts chapter 17 talks about this, how we were born for a particular time, particular place, in a particular city, and we have particular relationships so that the gospel message might be given to someone around us. And I'm going to develop this a little bit more, but all of us were called. Now we come to this point in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9, where somebody is called by the name of Matthew. Now he's called Matthew here. He wrote this particular gospel. But do you guys know his other name? It's Levi, that's right. And if his name was Levi, he was part of the Levitical priesthood. He was in that line. But Levi, or Levi, or Matthew, he ended up going in a different direction. He didn't follow the priestly line because he was considered an outcast. And let's read about him, his calling here. As Jesus went on, verse 9, 
From there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. So Matthew is the son of Alphaeus, we know from other gospels, but he is the guy that would sit there and take your money. He's the one that would be the IRS agent. Now, the Jews hated the tax collector. And there's ways that this was organized. You had these these groups, these tax collector bodies, so to speak. And these tax collector bodies would farm out the responsibility of grabbing taxes, literally grabbing taxes, from the people, and they would set up these regional districts. And in the regional districts, this main tax collecting body would set up the regional districts. And in the regional districts, they would take somebody who was an indigenous person, somebody who grew up in the area, and they would give to them the responsibility of taking the taxes from the people and then passing it on to the regional group, and the regional group would send it on to Rome. That's how it would work. Now, when this took place, the the people that would be the collectors came to be despised because they were given the task of not only collecting the tax, but whatever they could get on top of the tax was theirs. They could keep it. So they could extort anyone that they wanted to. You always wanted to be on the good side of the tax collector. If you weren't on the good side of the tax collector, he could virtually take anything that you had. And the power to tax is the power to destroy. So Matthew would have been a very powerful man. Now there was another one that was very powerful in the scriptures, and he was short, and he was in a tree. And what was his name? Zacchaeus. Yeah, he was the one in the tree. He was so short, he couldn't see Jesus, so he got in the trees looking around, and he was thrilled when he got called. Well, Matthew's been called here. Now this is in the area of Capernaum, and this is kind of Jesus' home base up in the northern end of the Sea of Galilee up there. And Matthew would have been sitting, there's, there's an actual stone marker that is up in the area of Capernaum, Capernaum where the tax collector would have been receiving taxes from people that would come into the area. They would come in from the north in Lebanon and Syria, and they'd come down this road right to Capernaum, and Capernaum then would veer off to the right and also to the left. If you went to the right, you would go to Bethsaida and around to what is known as Tiberias now, and you would head around the Sea of Galilee towards the Jordan River. If you went to the right, there would be Gadara or the Gadarenes that we just uh, learned about, the two demon-possessed men that were there, and you would continue around that way. And if you wanted to go to Jordan, you would kind of follow that route going on that side. If you wanted to go to Jerusalem, you would kind of go on this side of the Sea of Galilee. So that was the hub. That was a major thoroughfare right there, and everybody coming into the area would have to meet Matthew. And Matthew was in charge of taxing everybody. There was a flat pole tax, everyone 14 to 65 years of age, just to breathe Roman air, you would be taxed. Just because you were alive, you had to take pay this tax. And every female, 12 to 65, had to pay a flat tax. Well, how many taxes were there exactly? How many taxes do we have? <laughs> They're innumerable, and we don't even see all the taxes, and that's the point. You know, I've always been a firm believer as an employer. I've been an employer in the past, and I've always been a firm believer that if you made the individual pay their own tax, they would revolt against the taxes. Because, for instance, an employer, if you're an employer, you know this, 
the individual pays a little over 15% for their Social Security tax. Well, you know the employer matches that. And so what would go to you goes to the government. They just keep it from you in your paycheck. Now, you see your paycheck, you have your FICA, you have your state disability, your unemployment insurance, all of those things that are on there. And if you have something taken out for an IRA or a 401k, whatever that might be, by the time you get your check, you say, this is it? This is all I get? You know, and the government takes their share. You know, that recent lottery win they were talking about the millions that the government takes. It's almost 40% just because you win the lottery. They want their share and they will defend that, quote unquote, to the death. If, if they get a, a hankering to take your money, they're just going to come take it. Well, the same thing was true back then. They had a ground tax, an import tax, an export tax, taxes on axles, taxes on wheels, taxes on pack animals, taxes on pedestrians, taxes on roads, taxes on highways, taxes on admission to markets, taxes on carriers, taxes on bridges, taxes on ships, taxes on crossing rivers, taxes on dams, and taxes on licenses. And that's just some of the taxes that they had. So every time you turned around... You're being taxed. You know, it seems like it's been my case. Every time I get a little bit ahead, the government comes along and says, <clears throat> excuse us, and they would want a little bit of their cut. And it's like, where's all the, I don't have any gain, and so I work and be diligent, and where can I get this deduction, and how can I keep from paying so much tax? And, and that's one of the things we're voting on, by the way. Depending on who you vote for, your taxes may decrease, or they will certainly increase. If you don't think you're paying enough taxes, my recommendation to you is just send them a check. Instead of voting to raise your tax, just send a check and just be gracious in that way. That would be nice. But anyhow, Matthew is a tax collector. Let me ask, who in here has ever had to talk to an IRS agent? Who has? Was it an enjoyable experience? Did you look forward to it? Honey, guess what? We get to go talk to the IRS. I'm so excited. Let me get all my receipts and everything. Oh, this is going to be so good. I, I have never looked at it like, or you get that letter. Dun, 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 IRS urgent. You know, or if you get a certified mail, oh, great. What did I do now? And you think to yourself, I hate the IRS. Not the people in the IRS, although I could, but the IRS itself. And that's who Matthew was, and he was despised. And he did not go to church because the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like him, so it had been a long time. And along comes Jesus, sees him at the tax booth, and says, hey, you, yo, man, follow me. (laughs) What did he do? Oh, I got all this. Hold on, man. I got to take it. He didn't do that. He goes, okay, here's his prophet. Some call him the Messiah at this particular point. Some call him the son of God, which is a, a deity type of phrase. But they, they say, wow, who this guy is special. And he's calling me by name. Jesus has called all of us by name. He has called us to salvation. He called Matthew and Matthew said, you bet I am in wherever you go. I'm going, he was willing to forsake his entire life. He was willing to not any longer be subjected to the magistrates, which is the one who manages the collections of the funds, or to the society, the joint stock companies. Those are the big groups out there that that take in the money and give it directly to Rome. 
But the tax collectors and the sinners or tax collectors and the prostitutes or tax collectors and the publicans, those were all of a group that was anathema. They were not accepted. They were cursed. They were despised. And they tried to avoid them at every cost. And so Jesus calls this guy. And remember, and I mentioned this last week, Jesus calls a tax collector who's despised, a leper who is rejected, the Gentile centurion who is not accepted into the temple area. He was kind of tolerated. The demon-possessed guy who everybody avoided, the sick, the outcast, all of those. Jesus chose all of those. As I go through Scripture, there's only one person, maybe two, but one person that I can point to that was in the leadership of the Jews that sought out Jesus. Do you know who he was? Starts with an N. Nicodemus. That's it. Only one. And even then, he didn't quite understand what Jesus was all about. Not one of the leaders that we know of. Now, there were, there were some interactions, and so you might say, well, there may have been another one, but specifically, Nicodemus was the only one that followed after Jesus. Jesus said, I want everybody else. I want the riffraff. I want the prostitutes. I want the tax collectors. I want the Gentiles. I want those who are rejected. I want those who are dejected. I want the people who have the problems. I want the sick or the infirmed. I want the lame, the halt, the maimed, the blind. I want all of those people. Now, if you get together a football team, how did that work in elementary school? <laughs> you wanted the tallest, the strongest, the most apt you didn't say, well, let's see, I'll take the kid with one arm, I'll take the kid with one eye. You didn't say any of that. And Jesus is going, no, that's my group. Those are my people. I'm here for them. That, that is the grace of God. The things that we look at are not the things that God looks at. And by the way, those people with all those infirmities, all those problems, all those issues that they have in their life, they could be drunkards no matter what the case might be. Those are the individuals that Jesus says, you're just as bad of a sinner as the leaders of the Jews. The only difference was they were willing to accept Jesus and his message. That was the difference. They were willing to believe in him where the Jews, in their pride, they were unwilling. So let's go on to verse 10. While having, or excuse me, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And so, you, yeah, I, you know, I sit and I think about this. What might it be like? You have this guy who is despised. Now, the people in society who take these jobs that are on the edge, a tax collector would be somebody on the edge. Now, who would tax collectors hang out with? Other tax collectors. I'm sure IRS, the office downtown San Diego, they have a Christmas party. And guess who's there? Other IRS agents. Do you think that they bring in other people like the clients they deal with? Oh, yeah, man, you paid $40,000 in taxes. Come on down. We're having a Christmas party. You know, you probably wouldn't come, but you would go if you were just like Matthew. You, they knew each other, so in the different cities... Matthew says, I'm sure this is what took place. Matthew said, oh, I'm hanging out with the man. 
Jesus, and I want you to come. I want you to meet him. They go, no way. And he goes, way, come on over. Hey, and you know, and bring a fatted calf or something. We're going to fix something up, a little bit of pita bread there. We're going to have a good time, a raucous time. We're kind of going to yuck it up a little bit. And a lot of times, those people, they may have had a little more decorum, maybe, because they had to deal as a government official. But chances are they were on the edge. They probably drank. They didn't go to church. They probably laughed between themselves, told jokes. And guess what I did to this guy the other day? No way. You collected that much. Oh, wow. Yeah, and who's winning? And they'd keep tabs. And so they were probably some sinners. And they were all invited to dinner. Matthew says, come on over. Probably sent out invitations, gave it to runners, and they ran to the other cities, and they all came over. And Jesus says, hey, guys, how you doing? Walks right in. He probably didn't say it quite like that. Uh, But, you know, when Jesus showed up, he didn't have all white on, a halo around his head, walking in, floating above the ground and sitting down. He came in like one of the guys. Just walks right in. Hey, hey, guys, how's it going? Uh, Hey, what's your name? Oh, Oh, you're another Levi. Nice to meet you, Levi. And so he's hanging out with all these guys. Now, the equivalent today, and don't even think about doing it, would be going into some bar and going right up to the counter there and sit down next to somebody, some scar-faced-looking character. Hey, man, what's going on? Hey, my name is Bill. What's yours? Ah, Guido. Nice to meet you, Guido. You know, something like that. So why are you in here, man? Hey, I just thought I'd come in and talk. Is that all right? Hey, whatever suits you. you. You could get stuff like that going on. But the conversation of the tax collectors, they probably came in. They knew Jesus was a prophet. They probably shook his hand. They're being real conventional about, nice to meet you, sir. You know, And they probably went and sat down, and they're starting to eat. And they're, look at this. We're sitting with the Messiah. Can you believe it? And they're just kind of talking back and forth in this situation. And who shows up? The vernacular of our day, the party poopers show up and they go, what? What is he doing sitting with all these sinners? And their hair catches on fire, you know, and they, they just can't believe what's going on. And so Jesus hears the conversation, says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, they equated them together. There could have been a couple of prostitutes in there. Who knows? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the wealthy who need a doctor, but the sick or the, yeah, the healthy. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's so much packed just in this verse here, just in that little area in verse 12 and 13, actually. And we're going to look at that. We're going to dissect that. I, I, I want to be thorough on this as we're going through Matthew, because you never know when the Lord's going to come back. And so I, I just want to make sure I get all this information in here. So looking at these two verses here, you have religious superiority, the desire of mercy over the act of sacrifice. You have the calling of the righteous and the calling of the sinners. That's what's going on inside of here. So this first one is religious superiority. The pharisaical righteousness blinds followers of Jesus from seeking those who actually need what Jesus has. They're focused on themselves. They're not focused on the needs of others. And that was the pharisaical righteousness. They focus on maintaining self-righteousness over the need of the lost 
to know Christ. It's that self-focus. Now, I would ask you, I try to take inventory of this, and that would be incumbent upon you as well. Do we, as a group of people, do we focus on our self-interest, or are we constantly concerned and giving attention to the need of others? Now, it's not that we don't take care of ourselves. We take care of ourselves. Jesus said there's no man yet who has not loved himself. We love ourselves. We brush our teeth. We pay our bills and all of that. But do we have this mindset of considering others better than ourselves? Philippians chapter 2. The Pharisees did not. They were worried about their self-righteousness, maintaining their quote-unquote purity. Uh, you know, we, we look at ourselves and we say, well, we go to church, we pray, we give money, we fellowship. All of that is good, you know, for maintaining our health as Christians. And we should all have at least one person that we consider a filthy, rotten, sinner, pagan, however you want to classify them. One that needs the Lord. Ask yourself the question, and I took an inventory of this. Ask yourself the question, do you know somebody... Have you made a relationship with somebody that doesn't know the Lord and you know they need to be saved? Have you befriended them? Now, going way back 30 years ago, I was in Calvary Chapel of Mesa and there was a man, he was going to, uh, his wife was terminal. She knew she was terminal. And there was a period of time there where she was coming to the church and, and the husband was going to get a life insurance payout and they all knew it and the assistant pastor there asked me to befriend this gentleman and so i you know i met with him and i talked with him a few times sometimes there's a match and you get along and sometimes you know it just we have nothing in common that type of thing and that was a particular case but i i gave it a shot because i i knew what the assistant pastor was asking me to do this guy needed to be saved i needed to try to be an influence with him so he asked me to step in and kind of see what I could do. And so I did. A lot of times it doesn't work, but there are times it does work. And so with that, I, I took a personal inventory. I'm still talking to the Muslim Omar. I just talked to him yesterday. And he's getting ready to, he's trying to get this other guy who used to be a headmaster at a Muslim school to come and talk to me. Because I, I and I'm giving you a little personal insight here. I, I talked to Omar the other day, a couple weeks ago, and I said, Omar, look, man, I've come to you and I've given you all the prophecies, not all. I said, I've given you like 200 prophecies that have come true in the Bible. And I've given you the verses and I've gone through them with you to prove to you that the Bible is prophetic. And I, I reminded him, I asked him to give me prophecy from the Koran. And he comes up with these, one example he came up with. He said, well, it was prophesied that if somebody goes to battle, they will win. I said, that's like a 50-50, man. That, you know, you have a 50% chance to be ready. The prophecies are to have it fulfilled. I said, the prophecies in Scripture, it's a hundred to one or a thousand or a million to one that these things would take place, especially several of them. I said, so would you agree with me that the Bible is prophetic and the Koran is not? And, oh, man, you could see the resistance. He didn't want to agree to that. And I kept on bringing him back. Would you agree with me the Bible is prophetic? He goes, yes, I will agree with you that the Bible is prophetic. Another lie that all Muslims have been told is the Bible is full of errors. Well, I just whipped out this sheet of how the Bible was transmitted to us, and I gave him the evidence right in front of him in black and white type right there on the white page. 
I gave it to him. I said, now see, what you've been told is not the truth. Here's the evidence for it. Check me out. Please take this and, and go check me out on that. I said, would you agree with me with what you have been told about the Bible is not true? And he goes, well, okay. So I got him on two points, you know. And the other one about the discrepancies in the Koran as opposed to the Bible. You know, there are no discrepancies or contradictions in the Bible. But you go to the Koran, there are several. It was Adam made out of mud, like black mud. Or there's some other stuff he was made out of. And, you know, several contradictions there. And I've gone over that with him. But he goes, you know what? You need to talk to this guy. And I go, okay, I'll talk to the guy. I said, but when I talk to him, these are the things I'm going to ask him. Is the Quran prophetic? And is the Bible transmitted correctly? And I said, and I, he goes, write that down. And so I wrote it down and I gave it to him. And he goes, okay, I'll talk to him about that. And I said, just remember, if he has no answer, you have evidence the Bible is true. And I'm saying this in a nice way. I'm trying not to be offensive to him. And so I, I'm working him with the prayer of the Lord. You know, hopefully this guy is going to get saved. And if he gets saved, he's probably going to be booted out or... He will get his whole family. Yeah, you got to believe in Jesus Christ. I, I want this guy to be saved. You know, I'm, I'm praying for him. And I've been doing this for about a year now. And I have other people that I talk to on a regular basis, sat down in another guy's office. And I was just, you know, I'm trying to build a relationship with him. I want the guy to be saved. That's my whole motivation for everything that I do. If I meet a stranger, how you doing? Do you know Jesus Christ? Not quite that way. But, you know, you, you start talking to them. You want to give them the gospel. It's like Jesus calls us and he builds the relationship like with Matthew, and he goes to the dinner that Matthew sets up. I'd love to meet all your friends. Do we do that? You know, in the Christian tradition throughout history, what have we decided to do? Let's join a cloister or a monastery, get away from the world and be pure to God. And the Pharisees were guilty of that. And Jesus condemned them for that. So we need a friend who is out there who is a filthy, rotten, pagan sinner just like us. But we got saved, and we want to give them God's grace. This is the purpose for our existence. So Jesus went to the lost, and we want to pray about who God would have us talk to and build a relationship with. If all we ever do is talk to ourselves, we're missing the plan of God. We need to talk to those who don't know Jesus. When was the last time you invited somebody to church or to a Bible study? I know what it is. We, we say, well, they might turn me down. Yep. For every 10 that turn you down, you're going to get one that says, okay. They're going to say, okay. And that's the one that God has chosen. And that's the one we can give the gospel to. My prayer for you is that you get on the spectacles that Jesus would have you possess, that you can see that person that needs the gospel. Start talking to him. Build a relationship with him. Just like Jesus. Go to dinner with him. But we don't have anything in common. Yeah, you think so? I mean, we, we're going to heaven and they're not, and we want them to go with us. Well, what would you think of the person that knew the gospel and never gave it to you? And by the way, I'm not telling you this so that you can say, woe is me, Schleprock, I'm such a sinner. We all agree you are, all right? Just like I am. It's just, this is God's will for us that we do this, just like Jesus did it. Now, we all have, and by the way, Jesus is doing this, because he desires mercy and not sacrifice. In the scripture that's listed there, I'm going to read it again. 
It is not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinner. So he gives them an exhortation. Learn this. Go away and learn what this means. So that's for us. We're to sit there and meditate. What does he mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You know, these little sayings that Jesus has there are just packed full. It's like TNT condensed down into a little black cat, but it has the same power as 20 sticks of dynamite. That type of thing. That's what this is right here. So what is, what is he talking about? Desiring mercy over sacrifice. Well, first, extending mercy, that's what God does. He extends to us mercy. And I, I need to remind you, most of you know this already, but mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting, or uh, not getting what, excuse me. Back up, stop that, let me start over. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Justice is getting exactly what you deserve. You got those down? One more time. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. God had some mercy on us. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And justice is getting exactly what you deserve. Now, I have a strong sense of justice. Just a strong sense. When I hear that somebody has been wrong, I, I just want to stand up. This is wrong! You know, I, I, I want retribution when somebody has done something wrong. I'm going to read to you an article. And in this article, I want you... I'm going to... Well, I'll comment afterwards. Let me read this to you. This is in Zillianopal. Do you know where that is? Anyone? Zillianopal? It's in Pennsylvania. This is October 8th, 2018. The victim was basically being tortured in school by the other students and investigators, but the administration was only focused on protecting the girls who were lying, Fishman said. I'm going to tell you what happened. This boy, who five girls did not like, accused him of sexual harassment. Because of that, he was handcuffed in class, taken out, spent time in juvenile hall. He was harassed by the administrators at the school. He was harassed by the district attorney. He was ridiculed by the kids in the school. His life just became full of misery, is what happened. It goes on to say, once the allegations were proven false, they really didn't care one bit about this kid, and there has been absolutely no repercussions against the girls. According to Penn Live, one of the female accusers told school officials in a 2017 interview that she and the other mean girls made up the allegations because they just don't like them. It goes on to say... I just don't like to hear him talk, she reportedly disclosed. I don't like to look at him. In October 2017, the same girl told her classmates that she would do anything to get him expelled and admitted that she accused this guy of sexual assault according to the suit. As a result, this boy was fired from his job 
at this particular pool, forced to endure multiple court appearances, detention in juvenile facility, detention at home, loss of liberty, and other damages until several of the girls reluctantly admitted that their accusations were false. The teen's parents are suing the parent of the five girls, the school district, the district attorney, saying their son was bullied on multiple occasions by classmates. The lawsuit alleges that school officials and the district attorney's office didn't take any action against the girls even after learning their accusations were false. Now, what do you think about this? When I read this, I was fit to be tied. I, who can I call? Who can I email? What this district? I wanted it. And it's all over the Internet now that this kid was falsely accused because of these mean girls. By the way, this is the result of the Me Too movement. Hashtag Me Too movement. They want to just wield some power and destroy the lives of young men and older men. Now, some are guilty. There's no question about that. They are just guilty as sin. But a young guy like this being taken advantage of that, my sense of justice is what can we do as a church to help? You know, I'm, I'm just thinking all these things in my head. But when it comes to justice on me, Oh, no, I don't want justice. No, no, I want mercy and grace. But for somebody else, you know, I, I'm ready for them to be crucified, hung up, strung up, whatever you need to do to them. Now, I looked at myself and I said, is my sense of extending mercy as strong as my sense of extending justice? Sadly, I said, nope. It's not. Matter of fact, when I was in seminary, they made me take this test, and everything was just right in line. It was all good. I'm making headway, and they said, but mercy, you're at the opposite end of the spectrum. I have no mercy. And they said, you probably need to work on that. I said, okay, I'll be working on that. And I've gotten better with that. Or my idea of extending grace, is it as strong as my sense of justice? It's really not. I'm not doing that. You don't deserve that. I'm not giving, I'm not blessing you. And Jesus, that was his first and foremost thing. Not justice, but mercy, extending mercy to somebody. Now, mercy was not extended to those who said, huh, ain't doing it. I don't care what you say. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to follow whatever I want in my own heart. And it's all good for me. It may not be good for anybody else, but this is what I'm going to do. So God withholds his mercy from those people. He withholds his grace from those people. And guess what they get in abundance? Justice. So we're seeing the character of Jesus, our Savior. Our focus is to be on mercy, extending mercy to those who are in front of us that need the gospel. We are not to judge them and the way that they act or what they do when they are not saved. And I got this question last week. What would I do if somebody who is a transgender or a homosexual came into the church? Now, I've addressed this before. And they wanted to sit down. They wanted to hear the gospel. Would I go up and say, you probably need to change your dress and your lifestyle, and then you'll be welcome. That is the wrong response. Somebody comes here that's transgender or a homosexual or lesbian, please come in. Sit down. I want to talk to you. I will spend time with you. I will tell you about the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. And they are struggling in that lifestyle, I am sure. 
the suicide rate of the transgender teens is just out of this world. It is just getting worse and worse. But then the person who would come in that would say, I am a practicing homosexual, a Christian, and God loves me and accepts me for who I am. I would say, we have some talking to do. That's not what Scripture says. And Scripture says, I am supposed to ask you to leave if you're going to claim to be a Christian and say that this is okay. If you doubt me on that, you can look up the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And it talks about that. It says, no, and... 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, expel the wicked man from the church. But the person who does not believe that is seeking, bring them in, sit them down, befriend them, fellowship with them. And how long might it take? Well, I can't put a time limit on that. Look, you got until January 1st here to make a decision. And if you don't make that decision, we're going to have another conversation, all right? That's not what Jesus was saying. He, he didn't show up to Matthew's house and say, okay, look, I got until nine o'clock. If you guys want to follow me, hey, we'll make it nine o'clock, all right? Because I got some sleeping to do. I got to get out on the Sea of Galilee and fall asleep a little bit out there, and I got some things to do. I got to be about my father's will. Is that the way Jesus talked? No, he doesn't talk like that. He spent all of his life just going to these people or his ministry, the three years, going to the people that needed the mercy and the grace. And that's why we're supposed to be doing it. Do you guys get this concept? I, I want you to grab hold of it, all right? So going on with this, this idea of my justice is very strong. I need to make my mercy even stronger. I need to be concerned about those who are lost and those who are dying, who need the grace of God, and focus on them. And so the Pharisees, and by the way, the word Pharisee means separatist. They were the ones who would set themselves apart. The the name Pharisee comes from two words, Hebrew and Aramaic, parush and parushi, which means one who is separated. So they would separate themselves from everything in the world. If you go to Israel today, I've mentioned this before, if you go down by the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, some know it as, you will see the young Jewish boys with their curls up here and their white shirts and their black pants and their, their black hats up there, and they will huddle together shoulder to shoulder to keep from touching the Gentiles who are going by them because they don't want to be unclean. They separate themselves apart from everybody else. The Pharisees were focused on separating themselves for themselves the Pharisees had so separated themselves that they were ill-equipped to reach out to the lost. They had lost any kind of relationship with them whatsoever. The Pharisees had made the true worship of God unattractive to those who were lost. And, and we can do that as believers. We can show our Christianity to the world. And they go, I want nothing to do with that. I, I've told you about the a uh, Catholic church that was on El Cajon Boulevard carrying the signs, we don't want any prostitutes around here. Well, that makes the gospel attractive, doesn't it? You know, to those who are prostitutes, we shouldn't be doing that. And by the way, they're just as big a sinner as I am, and I'm not condemning them for it. It's just the behaviors we need to avoid. People give us examples of that all the time. We want to conduct ourselves in such a way to make the gospel attractive, to those who are out there. Now, how do we do that? Well, Titus 2.9 talks about this. Back then, they had the slaves. We would consider the slaves employees now. It says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. 
So as an employee and your employer that's over you, you want to make sure you're conducting yourself in such a way that they look at you and say, I like you. I want to promote you. You are a good, in the world's eyes, a good person. And we make the gospel attractive by being a good disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we want to avoid making the gospel unattractive. Uh, I was listening to one other pastor on this particular passage. And he said, there was a Canadian billboard. And on this billboard, it said, the wicked will go to hell and live there forever. Period. Wow. Makes me want to sign up, doesn't it? They were just being so friendly. Or how about this word by Henry Drummond? How many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by those unlovely characters who profess to be inside? It's so incumbent upon us to be making the gospel attractive, to befriending those who have no friends, to those who have no relationships with others, those who are loners. You know, if you get to some of the blogs out there um, that are on the Internet, some of the people write how they're lonely. They just want friends, you know, like uh, private message me. You know, I, I, I'm just sitting here all by myself. I have no friends, that type of thing. There are so many people like that, and we're supposed to befriend them. So then there's the calling of the righteous. Well, the calling of the righteous, the righteous have already been called. And those who were Pharisees, they were, quote-unquote, thinking they were righteous, and they've already been called. Jesus did not come for those who thought they were righteous. Jesus came for those who thought they were sinners, which brings us to the calling of the sinners. Jesus developed a relationship with Matthew. Matthew threw a meal for every friend that he had. All the tax collectors and sinners came over. They attended, and there was Jesus in the midst, rubbing elbows with those who were the sinners, and he didn't change who he was to be with them. He went to be with them to change them to be like him. And, and, and he could do it. He was God, and he was being influential in that way. Now, I'm going to tell you a story of this same pastor that I was listening to. He told the story of this woman, small woman. She got saved, and she was a pool shark, and she could beat anybody. And she would, before she got saved, she'd be in these bars and she'd make a living off of rustling people up and taking their money. You know, just say, oh, how do you do this exactly? You know, and getting on the pool table. And, and, and she, she said that some guys would come up to her and say, hey, you're awful pretty. Can I buy you a drink? Well, she would say, I tell you what, let's play a game of pool. If I lose, you can buy me a drink. If I win, you have to listen to me for an hour. And so, of course, she'd start out, you know, just being dumb. And, and, oh, what's the name of that ball? Oh, the cue ball, you know, doing things like that. And, and she would end up winning all the time. She never had a drink. She'd win all the time, and she would give the gospel. Now, again, don't even think about it. Don't think if you're a pool shark, I'm going to go to this bar and win somebody. Pastor Bill was talking about it. You know, don't, don't even do that. If your calling is unique, that is one thing. And hers was unique. And she figured out a way to get in there with her talents and influence those who needed Christ. What better place to go for her? I mean, not all of us are qualified to go do that, but she was qualified. And so what are your gifts and what are your talents? How can you use those to get in the midst of those who don't know Christ? 
you have some type of background, some type of talent that you can utilize for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus Christ. So the application for just these two verses here, seek out and develop relationships with those who are lost. Invite them to church. Invite them to church functions. You know, we have something coming up called the Spirit of Christmas on the Main. You should go to somebody that you know and say, you know what, I want you to come by. There's going to be free cotton candy. There's going to be free popcorn. There's going to be free candy. There's going to be salvation, which is free. Come on by, and we'll talk to you about it. You know, it's going to be great. Bring your grandkids. We're going to have stockings there, 350 or so many stockings, and they can make the stockings. And I, I think we're going to have a burrow, I think. Hopefully, he'll be a little more vocal this time, getting out there. But, you know, it, it's going to be a good thing. You can invite them to that. Or invite them to a Bible study, you know, the Monday night Bible study or the men's study or the women's study. Invite them, please. Let's not become, you know what it's like having an ingrown toenail? It's painful, right? Or an ingrown nail of some kind. Guess what happens to us when we get ingrown? It's painful. It's like, oh, man, we're so focused on ourselves. And I'm including myself in this, too. I have to take an examination when I look at the scripture. And, and if I say, I'm an ingrown toenail, I need to go see the doctor. Jesus, doctor, heal me of what's going on here. And he is faithful and just. He will do that. He will heal us of whatever ails us so that we can be about his business. Now, going on with this, in verse 14, here we have the disciples of John having a question about fasting. This is John the Baptist. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, wait a second. Are the disciples of John the Baptist hanging out with the Pharisees? What are they? And they're of the like mindset, and they come to Jesus, and they're saying, hey, how come your guys don't fast? You know, we fast. We're disciples of John. And I believe they, they were absolutely sincere in asking the questions. The Pharisees probably came up to them and said, go ask them, why why aren't those guys fasting? You know, they should fast. And the disciples of John are going, well, yeah, why not? Do you know how many times the scripture declares that the Jews were supposed to fast? Mandatory fast? One time. Yom Kippur. That was it. But the Jews were in the habit of fasting. Do you guys know how often? Twice a week. Monday and Thursday. Now, why Monday and Thursday? I heard one per person say, well, that's when the markets were at their peak and they could show everybody that they were fasting because of their self-righteousness. I, I don't know. I can be tempted by the pita bread there, but I'm fasting for the Lord, you know, or whatever the case might be. I, I don't know why it was Mondays and Thursdays, but that's the days that they chose to fast. They thought, well, that, this is good. I, I can fast on these particular days and it'll be just fine. Well, so the disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask him about this. And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth under an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, this is a complete metaphor here. 
He's talking about wine. He's talking about wineskins. He's talking about a bridegroom and all in relation to fasting. And you say, this seems like a non sequitur here. How, where is he going with this? I'd like to get some understanding of what's going on. Well, first, the ministry of John the Baptist, it was far reaching. Matter of fact, if you go to, if you were to turn to Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus, Paul shows up there and there's these guys who are disciples of John and he asks them, hey, so which baptism do you have? And they said, well, the baptism of John. He goes, what, you haven't received the Holy Spirit yet? And they said, we don't even know that there's a Holy Spirit. And so apparently this guy, Apollos, and if you read the end of Acts chapter 18, Apollos is there, and Apollos is going to Corinth. And in Corinth, you know, he's speaking there. And remember the two people, the couple, Aquila and Priscilla? They heard Apollos talking about the way of the Lord, but he didn't have it quite right. Apparently Apollos was also a disciple of John the Baptist, and he, he just needed to take the next step. He didn't quite know that Jesus was the way, but he had converted to the way of John the Baptist. So Aquila and Priscilla set him down, said, look, this is what you need to know. A more, and this is where we get the phrase, a more excellent way. It's in Scripture. And so they instructed Apollos, and Apollos probably had these guys converted. They probably came to the same belief system that Apollos had over in Ephesus. He was a, a man who was well-versed in the scriptures. He was a Gentile. Apollonius was probably his full name. And as a result of this, Paul shows up and says, hey, you guys need to take the next step. Some people say, no, they were probably saved. They knew Jesus. Other commentators say, no, they probably weren't saved. We, we're not quite sure. But this idea of the discipleship of John the Baptist, this is decades later in Acts chapter 19, as opposed to when Jesus was alive. They said it could be eighty fifty. Now, Jesus was around eighty thirty, somewhere around that, you can plus or minus a few years. So his influence had gone on, and these guys were sincere. They wanted to follow God, and they wanted to do it correctly, not like the Pharisees, but the two were kind of talking about this fasting thing. So they come over, and they talk to Jesus about it. So... They were asking, I believe, sincerely. The law of Moses required the people to fast once a year. There could be other times, national emergency, if the king asked for that to happen. Uh, it's also talked about in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 9, excuse me, 29, about afflicting your soul. And there's good things that happen as a result of fasting. It helps us to focus on spiritual things. It's, it's where we take control of our bodily appetites. I, I know during the week when I'm working, I, I go, I'm hungry. I actually, I don't say that out loud. You know, I'm not driving down the road and turn to the person in the other car and go, I'm hungry. I don't say that. I just, you know, I, I go, I'm hungry. I want something. And I know when that happens. And so I obey my body's appetites and I go get some Doritos Cool Ranch. And I pop those things in. Oh, God, I'm so satisfied. It tastes so good. But when you're fasting, when your body says, I'm hungry, I say, you shall not eat. And I control my bodily appetite. Now, I can only do that for a little bit of period of time. Otherwise, I'll be dead. You guys understand that, right? But, but that's what you do. And you try to focus on the spiritual things which are ahead of us. Now, I have to stop here. I have to stop here because we're going to receive communion. And I'll talk about fasting next week. But at, as I... Expand a little further here. I, I just want to explain uh, 
a little bit about the communion. You know, as believers, we have come to the point where we have accepted what Jesus says about us, that we are, in fact, sinners. And with that recognition that we are sinners, we reconcile our own thoughts that we need to repent. So first there is the recognition we are sinners. We agree with Jesus Christ. We say, I'm going to repent. I'm going to repent the way I think, and I'm going to repent of my actions. I'm going to turn in the opposite direction. And then there's a reaction. Do you know what the reaction of most all the first century Christians was? To get baptized. That's it. Now, the baptism does not get you saved, but that's a result of the recognition and the reconciliation turns into a reaction, and people know that we're saved. I heard somebody talking about going to India, and in India, people would profess Christ. They'd get them baptized right then. Okay, let's get you baptized right now. Let's get you in the water, and there's this public confession. There's also this idea of desire, denouncing, and dunking. We have this desire. I desire what Jesus desires for me. I recognize that I have this issue with faith. I need the faith. I I want to change. And so I'm denouncing my former life. And I'm going to get involved in dunking. Another way to say it with the salvation is faith, repentance, and baptism. For those of us who have experienced those things, we receive communion. We recognize Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he ate it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take this. This is my body. It is given for you. Take and eat. He did the same thing with the cup. And so we recognize the salvation that we have through faith, repentance, and the act of baptism. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's something that we do as a result. If we've done those three things, we are to be considered disciples of Jesus Christ, Christians. If you have done that, you are free to receive the communion. The person who has not done that, those things, just let the communion go by. Now, I think all of us in here, we're all Christians. Maybe there's somebody who doubts. If you doubt, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So the worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing a song about God's mercy on us. It's appropriate for this message here. And we're going to pass out the communion. And when it's passed out, please hold on to the bread and the cup. And once we all have it, uh, Eric will come up and he'll say a few words. And he'll pray over the uh, elements. And we'll go ahead and receive them together.